0: Please turn with me to Genesis chapter two and verse eighteen. Uh, I actually met some folks I'd never met this morning as I uh, as I came in, and it reminded me I haven't been actually out at Creekside in a while, and a bunch of new faces that uh, maybe you don't know me. Uh, my name is Brian Fisher. I'm a senior pastor at Grace. I usually teach over at the Anderson campus. I try to get out here at least uh, twice a year, but. Um, if I haven't met you before, I'd love to, love to meet you. It's actually really exciting for me to see so many new faces at our, at our Creekside campus. All right, Genesis chapter 2, 18 through 25, we're going to be talking about the topic of marriage this morning. And uh, if you are married, I'm pretty confident that uh, you can recall that moment when you realized that marriage wasn't going to be exactly what you expected it to be, right? Anybody ever have that moment? Uh, some, of you are, some of you are smiling, some of you are really stoic because you don't want to get punched. But uh, my wife had that moment very early in our marriage, probably like maybe just just a week after our honeymoon. I came home from work and I walked in the door and she was super excited because she had taken one of our wedding invitations and she had, she had cut it in half and then put it in a picture frame a really nice picture frame that we've been given for our wedding. And she's really excited to show me, and she showed it to me. And you're thinking, man, this is a great, you know, first week of marriage moment. I can, oh, let's celebrate with her, remember the wedding, and, you know, just have this really moment. But I didn't. I didn't. In that moment, I said, I looked at it, and I said, hey, do we have any more invitations? Because this one isn't cut quite straight. (laughs) Yeah, I did. I I, I did. I literally, I did say that. And uh, some of you ladies are going, oh my gosh, he's such a jerk. I'm not going to listen to anything he has to say. Uh, I, I just want to uh, disclaimer, that was 24 years ago and I have learned a couple things in the ensuing 24 years uh, since that point in time. Um, but that said, um, marriage can be frustrating at times, right? It's, it can be really beautiful and wonderful and fulfilling, but it can also be uh, disappointing and disillusioning at times. And I think sometimes that's because we just have the wrong expectations about marriage. I, I would argue that we... Sometimes go into marriage missing the point of what marriage actually is for or all about. Uh, sometimes we go into marriage saying to ourselves, marriage will make me complete. But you're already complete because you're made in the image of God, right? Uh, Adam was complete because he was in the image of God. Eve was complete because she was in the image of God. They didn't actually make each other complete Uh Jesus never married, and as far as we know, Paul never married, and both of them lived reasonably productive lives, right? (laughs) So we say to ourselves, marriage will make us complete, or we say, um, marriage will remove uh, all loneliness that I've ever experienced. But sometimes married people are lonely as well. Uh, Sometimes married people feel even more lonely uh, because they didn't make a really good choice, in marriage. Uh, sometimes one of the things I'll say to my single friends who are really struggling is to say, uh, you know, it, it might be better to be single and married and single and lonely than married and lonely. Right? Because in marriage that relationship's so close and so vulnerable that when it hurts, boy, that's a really hard loneliness. Um, not always, but you can be lonely in marriage as well. Or we say to ourselves, uh, marriage will make me happy. or right, that's the goal of marriage. Marriage is designed to make me happy, right? And I would say, well, I hope you get some happiness sometimes. But even on your best days of happiness, it's not perfect happiness. And there are some days that actually aren't happy in marriage because happiness isn't the goal of marriage, right? It's not the point. Just like the, the, the goal of, of having children is not happiness, right? And all parents say, man. Yeah, uh, hopefully you have some really, really wonderful and happy times with your kids. But that's not why you have kids. Right? Happiness isn't the goal of work. Hopefully you have days that you really enjoy your work, and it's a happy day at work. But that's not the goal of work, and it's not the goal of marriage. So what is the goal of marriage? What's the purpose? Well, God designed marriage. It was the first relationship that he gave to mankind. So if God designed it, he knows why he made it and how it works well. I want us to look at that introduction to marriage, Genesis chapter 2. And I want you to read with me beginning in verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a sleep to fall upon the man And he slept, then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. So what's the goal of marriage? Uh, the goal of marriage is oneness, right? And, and a oneness that we pursue, that as it grows and develops, it illustrates or reflects the very oneness that Father, Son, and Spirit have experienced within the Trinity for all of eternity. All right? So the goal of marriage is a oneness that is reflective of the very nature of God. Now, specifically, what are we talking about? Well, first I'd say we're talking about uh, oneness in affection, uh, you remember that when Jesus was asked the great commandment of Scripture, he said it's this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He didn't say, don't love anything else. But he said, for life to function well, you have to have all of your affections in order. Right? Your loves have to be in order. And the first love has to be love for your Creator, Redeemer. It has to be God. Second, right behind it, if you're married, is your love for your spouse. You can't love your job more or your kids more or anything else. In other words, the loves have to be in order. God and then your spouse. So notice what it says here in verse uh, 23. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I don't know if you ever noticed before, but these are actually the very first words that a human ever spoke that are recorded in the Bible. And in the Hebrew it's really descriptive. It's an, it's an exclamation. But what Adam says here is like it's like, wow. It's like finally, this one, right? He's been looking at all these different creatures. No, 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 no. I'll give it a name, but no, no, no. And God brings him Eve, and he goes, Finally, at last, this one is the one for me. God didn't have to tell him this is the right one. He just goes, Yes. Yes. And his affections became ordered. God and then his spouse. Now, when the fall happened, Adam's affections became disordered. It wasn't God, and then his spouse, it was himself. Self-protection became Adam's greatest priority and greatest affection, and then marriage and all other relationships didn't work well. To grow in oneness means we grow in ordering our affections together, God, and then spouse, and then other things after that. Second... Oneness means uh, one and shared identity. Verse twenty four: For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, one flesh certainly in- includes um, you know sexual union, but it's much much more broad than that. It, it actually is family. Right? the one flesh means we will become one new identity together, an identity that's actually more important and stronger than biological identity. We are now. One together. We belong together with one another. So growing in oneness is growing in that sense of a a singular identity together. Third, one in commitment. One in commitment. Verse 24 says, uh, The two shall become one flesh. And when Jesus is teaching on marriage, he actually quotes Genesis 2.24, and then he adds commentary. (laughs) Do you remember what he says afterwards? The two shall become one flesh. Period. End of citation. He says, therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. In other words, he says, God's intention is that this union would be safe and secure and permanent. Forever. That was God's design. So marriage should become the very safest place on all of earth. But it's often not, is it? Often it feels like a very vulnerable and a very frightening place I, I frequently will have couples come into my office who are really struggling in their marriage and sometimes uh unfortunately too often one of them will, will make a threat right? use a threat threat is the, the divorce word and when they do uh, i kick them in the shins <laughs> not really I, i'm not i'm not actually a good counselor uh, that's not my calling counseling but i have my own techniques <clears throat> no i don't i but i verbally kick them in the shins i'm like uh-uh That is not, you you take that off of the table. Because for your marriage to be all that God designed it to be, it becomes a safe place, a shared commitment forever. And you don't want to do anything that undermines that sense of safety and security. Fourth, one in purpose. Read with me again Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every moving thing that moves on the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. That is, uh, exercise dominion, rule in relationship with one another, and as you're doing so, you reflect my nature. So Adam couldn't do that in isolation because God is a relational God, Father, Son, and Spirit, working together, loving one another. And so Adam, in isolation, couldn't fulfill that purpose. He needed another who is described by by two words. Remember, um, God says as he looks out at creation, it's good, it's good, it's good, and he says, this is not good for man to be alone. He puts Adam to sleep It says he brought him a helper who was comparable to him or corresponding to him. And that word for helper is not, it's not a diminutive term. It's not derogatory. In fact, God frequently uses that term of himself. He says, I am a helper. And when the helper is described, not just of God, but of others, it's frequent that the helper actually is stronger than the one being helped, right? The helper is bringing something that the one being helped needs and doesn't have in and of himself or herself, right? So God says, I'm a helper. And Adam, you need a helper. You need a helper in order to fulfill your design and fulfill your purpose. Second, he says the helper is going to be uh, corresponding to him. In Hebrew, that is literally um, like as in front of him or according to what is in front of him. So it's as if Adam is is looking in a mirror and he sees something that is just like him but opposite, right? Just, Just like him and his equal but not identical to him, right? So one that will... Help him fulfill God's design for him, which is to reflect the very nature of God on earth. Now, why is this important? i to take you back to John 17, Jesus' high, high priestly prayer. He said this, I ask, Father, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, Jesus is praying specifically for his disciples. And then he says, I want to pray for not just my disciples, but all who will believe through them. He's actually praying here for the church. And his desire is that within the church, we would have relationships that that experience this oneness that is reflective of the relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit. The, The perfect loving relationship that the Trinity experienced for all of eternity to be reflected in the church, in your relationships, and in the home. So what we're going to talk about specifically is marriage, but generally it applies as well to the body of Christ, which is the bride of Christ. When our relationships here and in the home are growing in oneness, they reflect father, son, and spirit in unity together. Right, Affections ordered, purpose being one, Right, one in commitment and loyalty. And then the world looks and says, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Your relationships in the body of Christ, your relationship... In marriage is not ultimately for your happiness. It's so that God would see your relationship or people would see your relationships and they'd be drawn to God, right? So there's a transcendent meaning and purpose to all of your relationships and especially to your relationship in marriage. So how do we grow in oneness or how do the two become one? I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5 and let's read together verse 22. It says, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. I want to show you a short video clip that illustrates uh, this verse. It was a perfectly lovely homily on Ephesians 5:21. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Yeah, she's skipping over the part that says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. I do skip over that part. Why? Because it's stupid. Okay. There you go. There you go, right? Even with much fear and trepidation, I uh, launch into a discussion of Ephesians chapter 5 because it's not very popular in our culture, is it? Not at all. But I think one of the reasons it's not popular is because we start reading in 522 and we should actually start reading in 521. So read with me again 521. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives unto your own husbands as to the Lord. The controlling verse of this entire section is 521. Paul has just gone on a lengthy discourse about relationships in the body of Christ and he says, here's the bottom line. If I can sum up relationships in the body of Christ, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That is, out of your reverence to Christ and to display Christ to the world, all of you in your relationships to one another, commit yourselves to surrendering, surrendering and sacrificing your will, your needs, your desires for one another. Do you want great relationships in the body of Christ? It says commit to mutual submission. This is exactly what he says, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, although he was equal with God, chose to submit himself. He says, therefore what I want you to do is consider one another as more important than yourself. Marriage is not a 50-50 proposition. If you go into it saying I'll give 50 and I want the other person to give 50, your marriage will be horrible. Because you'll always be feeling like I've given more I'm receiving. If you go into any relationship to get rather than to give, it's not going to be a good relationship for you. If you go in saying, I'm 100% in, period, I'm 100% in, I'm in the relationship to give. Whatever I receive is wonderful, but I don't have expectations about what that person owes me back. I'm just going to give. Now, I'm not saying that that's simple or that that's easy, but when both people say, I'm 100% in, I'm here to give, Not to get relationships grow and become healthy, right? That's really rich soil. And so, the controlling verse for this whole section for the body of Christ and then for marriage is be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, Paul's going to say specifically, what does it mean to be mutually submissive for the wife? What does it mean to be mutually submissive for the husband? In other words, mutual submission. That is, putting the the needs and desires and longings of the other person above your own is an obligation of both husbands and wives. They just do it in different ways. So Paul addresses wives first, and he says, Wives, imitate Christ's humility. Read with me again verse 21. Therefore, all of you be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, to honor Christ and to, to represent Christ. Wives, unto your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. And then in verse 33, nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Uh, Paul says, let me explain to you what I mean by the husband being head of his wife or head in his family, just as he is head in his family, Christ is head over the church. That is, Christ is responsible to present the church before the Father without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, right? Jesus is responsible for his bride. Husbands, you're responsible for your bride. You're responsible for your family. You're responsible to point your family in a direction that everything that they say and do honors and reflects on the love that Jesus Christ has for us. You're responsible for that. Now, wives, you're responsible to show him honor and respect as having the headship responsibility in your home. Uh, that's, biblical, that's biblical submission. Now, before I dive into what submission actually means, I want to talk a little bit about what submission does not mean. Submission does not mean that husbands are godlier than their wives, or that men are godlier than women, or that they're more valuable in any respect. In fact, uh, I'm sure Matt got into this uh, earlier when we introduced the series. We are all co-heirs of the grace of life. We're equally made in the image of God. We're also equally broken by the fall. And so we come to the cross and it levels all of us. And we reach up to Jesus and we say, Jesus, we can't reconcile ourselves to God. Thank you for removing our debt of sin and giving us eternal life freely. We all come exactly the same way. All equally valuable to God, all worthy in God's mind of the death of his son, Jesus Christ. Right? So that's not what submission means. Second, submission does not mean that men are actually better leaders than women. This is not, submission is not uh, about skill set or qualification. Jesus was equal to the Father, and yet he chose to submit his will to the Father. Submission does not mean that all women should submit to all men. This is talking about the home. So it's not talking about government or education or uh, business or your local HOA, right? This is talking about your family. It's talking about the home because what God says uh, he's exercising dominion over right now and governing is your home and the body of Christ, right? Submission does not mean uh, that women should have bland personalities. Uh, If it did, my wife would, would just fail all the time. My wife does not have a bland personality. She has an incredibly dynamic personality. And I love that she has a dynamic personality. But, you know, when she first started studying this a little bit, it made her nervous, right? Because Peter says uh, that wives, you should have a gentle and quiet spirit. And she goes, I'm not gentle and quiet. (laughs) I know. And that's okay, because he's talking about your spirit. But if you read the description of the woman in Proverbs 31, that lady gets it done, right? There is a ton of personality in Proverbs chapter 31, right? Personality, be who God made you to be. That's not what biblical submission is about. Finally, biblical submission does not mean unquestioning obedience to your husband. Because for all of us, our ultimate responsibility is to obey God. And if any earthly authority tells us to do something that's not consistent with obeying God, we have to say no. So if your husband tells you to do something unethical or illegal or moral, you say no. Right? It's not a preference issue. You, you say no. Uh, if governing authorities tell you to do something illegal or immoral or unethical, you say no. Uh, if the elders tell me to do something illegal or immoral or a- unethical, I say no. Because am I under their authority? Yes. But they are not my ultimate authority. My ultimate authority is God. So what is uh, biblical submission? Well, two things. First, submission is voluntary surrender. Right? It's voluntary surrender of your will, and then your needs, maybe, or your desires, your rights. It's a voluntary surrender. Uh, In other words, uh, other people can subjugate you, but only you can choose to submit. Does that make sense? It's, It's always voluntary. Biblical submission is always voluntary. Jesus would say, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down and I take it up again. It's a choice. So that means, husbands, if you're in the midst of an argument, you can't say God calls you to submit. That's not not your card to play, right? Paul doesn't say, husbands, make your wives submit. He says, wives of your own free will, choose to voluntarily surrender your rights, your desires, your needs to another. Why? Because submission puts Christ on display. Submission puts Christ on display. On display. And that's the point of marriage. Wives, how do you put Christ on display? Well, think about how Christ responded to his Father. He was equal with his Father. Father, Son, Spirit, all equally God for all of eternity. And yet, as Jesus was about to go to the cross, he was praying to his Father, and he said, Father, as sweat came down like drops of blood, he was in such anguish, he said, Father, I really would like you to come up with a better plan, a different plan. Is there another plan? Is there a way that you can cause this cup to pass from me? And the cup was not just the physical suffering of being beaten Nearly to death and then crucified, it was really more importantly the spiritual separation, the rupture within the Godhead, right? This perfect relationship that he had enjoyed with the Spirit and the Father for all of eternity was fractured by the cross. And Jesus, that's what frightened him more than anything else, right? So he's hanging on the cross and he says, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" There's a fracture, God. Had turned his back on him and he'd never known that before that was the worst tragedy in the universe and jesus says if you can cause this cup to pass from me that's what i desire yet not my will but yours be done that is that is a statement of strength no one took jesus life from him he said the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many i'm choosing this not my will, but yours be done. That's the most powerful prayer in the universe, right? God always says yes to that one. God always says yes. So submission is ultimately, it's a sign of strength. I would also say it's a sign of security. Uh, Right before Jesus went to the cross, you recall that he had that last supper with his disciples, and as the meal finished, uh, Jesus got up, he took off his outer robe, and he put on a towel of a servant, he took a basin and then he went around and he washed all the disciples' feet. And if you can, if you want to visualize this, right? They're not. It's not like uh, Da Vinci's Last Supper. They're not all sitting at a table in a row, right? They're, there's. It's actually like a U-shaped low table, and there are carpets laid out, and they're all laying on their side, right? Propped up on one elbow, reaching in and eating food like this. So all their feet are out in this circle. And so what Jesus is doing is he starts at one end of the U shape and he's going around, and he's washing uh, 24 feet, right? He even washes Judas' feet. The creator of the universe is scrubbing the dirt out from between the toes of all the disciples, right? And it was grimy. They wear, they wear sandals, and there's not pavement, it's dirt. I mean, they're, they're a mess, and no one had washed anyone's feet when they walked in. No one had been willing to be a servant. And so Jesus is going around foot by foot by foot, and, you know, it took a while. I mean, he just, he, he let the awkwardness just sit, there, and they're all feeling uncomfortable watching it, and then Jesus is touching their feet. The teacher's just, I don't like anybody to touch my feet anyway, you know, that's just weird, right? This is Jesus washing their feet. Peter objects. He goes, no, 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 Lord, this is not appropriate. And Jesus says, look, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. At which point, Peter says, well, just wash my whole body then, right? I want to part with you. He doesn't get it. But John gives us commentary uh, before the foot washing. He says, Jesus, Uh, Knowing that he had come forth from the Father, that he was going back to the Father, that the Father had given all things into his hands, then he arose and served. In other words, Jesus knew that he was the creator of the universe. He knew that he would return to the Father, then the Father would turn over all of creation again to his rule and authority. He knew where he came from, he knew where he was going, and therefore he was able to humble himself because he was secure in his identity. Right? And only secure people serve. Only secure people allow themselves to be treated as a servant. Right? So biblical submission is a sign of strength, and it's a sign of security. So wives, when you submit yourselves to your husbands and you turn over your will, you turn over your rights, you turn over your desires, even turn over your needs to another, that displays Christ. That is crazy supernatural. Right? It's crazy supernatural. And the world sees that, they see a picture of the way that Christ loves us. Now, you can do the same thing if you are not married in your friendships. In fact, remember, this should be reflective of the body of Christ, which is Christ's bride, as well as in our homes, that we love one another this way. Controlling verses 521. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. When you turn over your rights and your will and your desires and your needs to your friends, Christ is displayed. So, Ultimately, your deepest friendship should be in the body of Christ because there's a oneness you can experience in the body of Christ that you can't experience anywhere else. And in fact, I've experienced this when I've gone overseas and I immediately meet people who, it's a different language, different culture, but there's this incredible bond in Christ because our affections are aligned. Right? And it's a really mysterious and magical thing that you can experience this oneness. True in the body of Christ, true in marriage. So Paul says, wives... Imitate Christ's humility. Husbands, imitate Christ's love. Look at chapter 5 and verse 25. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So... Husbands, similarly, ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we're members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall become joined to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual also is to love his own wife even as himself. The wife is to see to it that she respects her husband. Paul says this is a mystery, but marriage was designed to reflect the church, and the church was designed to reflect the relationships within the Trinity. So husbands, your calling is to love your own wife just as Christ loved the church. Now, I don't know if you noticed it, but there's a lot more instructions given to husbands than to wives. I actually counted the words Uh, a couple years ago, there there are seven verses to husbands, three to wives, there are 41 words to wives, and 116 to husbands. Why? Because in the first century, uh, Paul's exhortation to wives to submit to their husbands wouldn't have been radical, patriarchal society. But husbands love their wives sacrificially, that's radical, because in Paul's worldview, Jewish, Roman, Greek, the family exists to serve the desires and needs of the father or the husband, right? He's the king of his home. Serve me, serve me, serve me. That was the mentality. And Paul says, no, actually, you're the head of the home, which means you're the chief servant. That's what it means to be the head of the home. You're responsible to point your family in a direction that everything that they say and do honors Jesus Christ, that means you do anything in your power as a servant to move your family this direction and you're responsible and accountable accountable before God to do just that. So how does a husband do it? What does it look like for a husband to love his wife as Christ loves the church? I'd say first it's this. Uh, Initiate and pursue. Initiate and pursue. Grace means initiative, which is the opposite of Passivity. To a large measure, we're in the predicament we are in right now because Adam was passive. In the account in Genesis, it says literally, as Eve was being tempted and taking the fruit, that Adam was with her and her husband with her. It so says he's standing right there and he's he's hearing all the temptation and he's not intervening. He's, he's passive, he's quiet. He's not guarding, he's not protecting. He's silent. You know, there was a story that was told uh, about a young Jewish boy who came home one day, and he told his mom uh, excitedly that he got a role in the school play. And his mom said, oh, that's wonderful. What role did you get? And he, he was super pumped. He goes, I got the role of, of the father. I'm the papa. And his mom was furious. She goes, you go, home, you go right back to school, and you tell your teacher you want a speaking part. <laughs> Just let that sit, right? Not passive. Pursuing not passive, pursuing, initiating, not waiting. Agape love, which is what's described here, is the love that Christ has for us. And it's a love that's not passive, it's a love that's active, right? Even when we were dead in our transgressions and sin, Christ reconciled us to God. He didn't leave us broken and unable to pursue him, he chased us down whether we deserved it or not, whether we wanted it or not, which we didn't, God chased. That's Christ-like love. Second, sacrifice and serve. Uh, How did Christ love the church? Paul says uh, he gave his life for the church. Talk about surrendering your rights. First right is right to life. He gave his life, literally gave his life. Now, as husbands, we may not be called upon to literally give our lives, but every day, figuratively, you say no to yourself. You say no to your own Rights and needs and desires for your wife. That's spiritual leadership in the home. Sacrificial love. As Jesus said, I did not come to be served. (laughs) Creator of the universe, I didn't come to be served. Which is entirely the opposite of the entire ancient Near Eastern concept of God, which is he created mankind to serve him. Jesus says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Husbands, your family doesn't exist for your happiness. They don't. They exist as a place for you to serve to help them move toward holiness. Sacrifice and serve. Assume responsibility. Right? Take responsibility, in fact, as the head of your home, which uh, means not as a dictator and not as CEO, CEO of your home, marking out orders, but as the chief servant. Right? The chief servant says, I'll take on this responsibility to point our, our, our family in the right direction. And then fourth, protect and secure. Protect and secure. When Paul describes love in First Corinthians thirteen, he says, it's patient, it's kind, but end he says, love never fails. In other words, love doesn't quit. Husbands, your job is to create this environment for your wife and for your kids where they know you will never leave. They're safe. They're secure. Marriage and family can be the most frightening place or it can be the safest place. Now, for some of you, you may be sitting there and this is a hard message. You go, you know, I haven't done that. I haven't done that. And maybe you haven't done it to the extent that your marriage, first marriage dissolved. Or maybe you're still in it, but you're not, you're not creating safety yet. You can, you can start today. Even if that marriage dissolved, you can go back and you can pursue and you can initiate Right? Your, your kids may be banged up, and you may not know where to start, but start. Right? You can do this. But this is not the final word, and, you, and it may be that you have another opportunity to get married again in the future. You can create this, and you can learn, and you can create it uh, in your other relationships. Because this is part of what it means to grow up into manhood, is that we create safe places for people to be. We protect and secure, we take responsibility, we sacrifice and serve. Have we all failed at all of these things in the past? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think about uh, not just, you know, cutting of the, the wedding invitation, but there were plenty of opportunities where Tracy stopped and said, oh my goodness, what did I get myself into, right? And I had to learn and I had to grow. And just because you failed in the past, that's the beauty of God's mercies being new absolutely every morning. So, start again. Now I had uh, years ago when I was a young pastor and I was doing a wedding early on and and I used Ephesians 5 in the wedding and at the end of the wedding, standing around in the reception and this this lady across the room, man, she caught locked eyes with me and she just she just made a beeline for me and it, look on her face I was like, "Oh no." <laughs> What did I say wrong? What did I do wrong? I mean, she really looked really, she was coming after me. And she got right up in my face and she said, I want you to know something. I'm a Jewish atheist. I'm like, "Oh," she goes, and I heard you reading that passage from Paul in Ephesians 5. I've heard that before. And as soon as you started that, I'm thinking, okay, wives submit, wives submit. I thought, oh, this is terrible. And you're, he's telling this young couple this. And she said, I was just feeling really angry. And then as you described how a husband should love his wife, I thought to myself, if my husband loved me like this, I would love to follow him. Thank you. It's like, wow. I hadn't even thought about that, how that would affect her. But, you know, when couples come into my office and they're, they're struggling in their marriage, the first thing that I do, because of Paul's ratios of 30 words to 100 words, I go first to the husband, I say, are you loving your wife as Christ loved the church? Because if you love like this, a lot of the other issues are going to take care of themselves. So I start by kicking the husband in the shins first. If you want to come to counseling with me, just know that's where the conversation will begin. Right? Because you're responsible to create a safe place for her to follow. Now notice the result of this. If you turn back to Genesis chapter 2. let again, verse 24. It says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, Moses didn't include that last verse just to make us feel uncomfortable when we were 13, right? That's not why it's there. It's actually there on purpose. Because Adam and Eve were experiencing a oneness that made them feel so safe that they could be naked, and unashamed, right? Complete transparency, complete vulnerability, complete acceptance, secure. And what happens in a marriage as it moves toward oneness is it becomes safer and safer and safer and safer, right? And it's a oneness that actually reflects and radiates husbands as you love sacrificially, you reflect Christ, wives as you respect and you honor and you submit, you reflect Christ's submission to the Father, right? We both reflect Christ and the world looks in and they say, I don't have that, but I want that. That's different from anything I've ever seen. The same should be true in our relationships in the body of Christ. They look in at our relationships in the body of Christ, which aren't perfect, but when we harm one another, we seek forgiveness and we reconcile and we, we recreate safety. And they say, I need that, I want that, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know anywhere else I can find that. that. That's why we have relationships in the body of Christ. That's why we have relationships in marriage, right? That's the transcendent purpose. So how do we apply this? I'm going to give you a few ideas, uh, but we're going to close with communion this morning. Uh, this so if I could ask the servers to, uh, to head to the back and get ready. Uh, for communion, and let me give us a few application points uh, if you are uh, If you are single today, you may be single for a wide variety of reasons. Uh, maybe that, that you are divorced. I want you to remember divorce is not the final word on your life. You can fulfill god 's purposes on your life as a single person, even if you never marry again, you can make disciples, you can mutually submit in your friendships you can uh, love your kids and create a new place of safety for them. This, divorce is not the final word. Um, the reason that Paul told his testimony in First Timothy chapter 1 is so that everyone would understand that if God could show mercy to a murderer like him, God could show mercy to anyone and use him. Right? Probably the most useful apostle in, a, in establishing the church had a, had a really difficult past. And that's what God does. Right? And he, he may even redeem and rescue your experience of of divorce or difficult marriage to bless others, right? Or maybe that you're a a widow or a widower. Perhaps God will allow you to marry again, or he may not. But you can use all of your remaining years on earth to bless others. Uh, One of our most active groups in our church is called the Owls, Older, Wiser, Loving Saints. Uh, They love one another well, but they also serve together. And it's a really beautiful thing. If God's given you remaining years, well, use them. Use them usefully. Uh, If you're single, you've never been married, Take advantage of that singleness. Man, I did. I I didn't get married until I was almost like 31. And so the Lord gave me opportunity to travel and I did lots of mission stuff. I didn't have to uh, consider, are my kids in school? Are they going to take them out of school? I was able to do incredible stuff during that time. And in the process of of being thankful for that time, God taught me contentment as I waited. Or maybe that you're married this morning and your application is is a little more direct. Uh, I would say this, um, Wives make room for your husband to lead. A lot of times you're running the house and he kind of steps in and he doesn't fit in the mode where you're moving things. You got to make room. I remember when our kids were little, I'd come home and Trissy needed help, but I didn't always give the help the way she wanted the help, right? Because I'd come in, I'd have just like tons of energy. It's time for the kids to wind down. I'd be like, all right, let's play. Let's, you know, she'd come in, bath. There's more water outside the bath. You know, it's just creating work and chaos. And you know what she did for me is she, she gave me an A for effort. She said, thank you. I love it that you are engaged with our kids and love our kids. Could you do it more calmly, right? Could you make less of a mess, right? So I, I got the A for effort because here's the deal, wives, uh, your husband may put on this this front where he's just super solid, super secure in absolutely everything, but every soul is fragile. And if he's not really even sure how to initiate in your family, what he needs is lots and lots and lots and lots of encouragement. I say way to go all the time. Thank you. Uh, my wife's an incredible, one of her spiritual gifts is encouragement, incredible encourager, and it's, it's rare that a day goes by that she doesn't say, hey, thank you for providing for our family. Thank you for engaging with our kids. Thank, you know, and that, all those thank yous and encouragement just gives me more energy to try something new and to take a risk. Because sometimes I don't know what to do. But part of that is what it means to be a man is that you don't pull back in passivity. You just dive in even when you don't know exactly what to do. Uh, husbands, dive in. Wives right? create space and encourage husbands. Get after it. Uh, There was something years ago that caused you to say, I want to go after that woman and I want to make her mine and she needs to feel that every day. That you still want to chase after her. You still want to make her yours. right? She wants you to initiate and pursue and pursue and pursue. She wants to know that other than Jesus, she is your highest affection. And if you've grown passive in that, get busy. And I don't, even your poetry may stink. Write a poem. I don't care. Just do something that shows her you are pursuing her. Because when you pursue, you demonstrate the love of Christ. As we close, we're going to celebrate communion, which is our visible illustration, as a body of Christ, that Jesus pursued us. We're broken and dead in our sins, and God sent his Son, who literally gave his body and literally gave his blood so that we could be restored to life. So as we're served, I want you to just take a few moments quietly to meditate upon The gift that Christ gave to us and the sacrifice that he was willing to make, even though he was creator, he took on human flesh and died for us. It's just a remarkable thing. And then think about what that would look like in your own relationships if you said, you know, I'm going to surrender my rights and my needs and my desires to others. What would happen in my relationships? Okay, if I could ask the servers to come forward, uh, we'll wait till everyone is served and then we'll take the bread and the cup together. lift up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus gave this this ritual of of bread and a cup uh, to remind us that life is found in him. So uh, when he's talking to John 6, Uh, about his body and the blood what he was describing was an illustration or a metaphor right when you eat or when you drink you're taking this thing in to give you life so it's a symbol of belief it's the moment that you believe jesus the first time he removes that debt of sin and he implants eternal life in the place of death right so the separation is gone and now you have life in christ life that lasts forever and every time you celebrate communion you're reminded that life is only found in Jesus. And it may be this morning that some of you have never had that first moment where you said, I believe. I believe that it's my debt of sin that separated me and only the work of Christ can put me back in right relationship with God. Let me encourage you right now, uh, as you're taking bread or drinking a cup, you take advantage of this moment to say, God, I believe. I believe that Jesus is the one source of life. And if you've already believed that, uh, let's just remember again, the depth of the sacrifice that the creator would make for us and then would call upon us to do for others right? because remember when jesus finished washing the disciples feet he said i don't want you to miss the point what i've done for you i want you to do for others right? don't miss this awkward moment you're you're servants of one another and if you want to really have rich and wonderful relationships and reflect christ to the world you serve one another as i've served you so let's remember that as we take the bread and the cup together When Jesus took the bread, he gave thanks. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then Jesus took the cup also and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's the cup that removes the debt of sin. Let's take the cup together. Jesus, thank you for being willing to surrender your rights, to say no to what you Wanted in the moment before suffering. And that you're willing to to sacrifice and serve even to the point of death, death on the cross. Father, thank you for your willingness to send your son and be separated from him. And I pray, Father, that as we reflect on that, we would be willing to uh, extend the same love sacrificially toward one another and and really display uh, why Jesus came to the world. So in Christ's name we pray, amen.